Thank you. Again, thank you. Thank you for your ministry among us. So many of you participated. We're really thankful for that. I stood up a bunch of folks last week uh, that participated in the summer Bible clubs, the teen ministry, the children's ministry, the nursery ministry. This week, I also want to give thanks for those of you that have been doing ministry with adults. Adult ministry counts as well. Um, So if you are involved in any of these ministries I want to mention that are adult ministries, will you stand so we can give thanks for your ministry as well? Uh, If you help to lead adult small groups, if you've been doing that the last year or two, whether that's with the women's ministry, our open general small groups, our celebrate recovery groups, um, could you stand? I want to recognize you, those who have helped to lead Sunday school classes as well. Can you stand? Let's keep standing. Um, I want to thank those who have served on our mercy team. Anybody here that has helped out with our mercy team, bringing meals to people, or our welcome team, welcoming people, Um, If you've been on our prayer team, our prayer response team, can you stand as well? I'm asking a lot of people to stand. You should be standing now while I'm saying that. That's how how it works. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Thank you. Um, Those who have helped with the uh, worship team, musicians, PowerPoint, uh, sound techs, right? Yeah, stand up. Thank you very much for your ministry. Yeah. Our elders, our deacons, can we have any of our elders and deacons in here? Can you stand up as well? Thank you very much, yeah. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll try to recognize more folks in the next couple of weeks, but we just want to give praise. Um, today we're also sending 50 more people out to launch a new church plant in Harker Heights, and so we're also going to give thanks for that. The 50 of you helping to launch the church plant I don't think are here, so I'm just kind of saying it, I don't, because that's starting today. Some of them are. We've got some, you know, a mixed multitude a little bit, yeah. Um, but we want to give praise for that as well. They're having their first service, so continue to pray for them. That happens at 4 p.m. The plan, just so you all know, is that they're going to meet here 4 p.m. for about three or four months and then get into the neighborhood in Harker Heights where they're focusing their ministry in about three or four months. So we're excited about that, kicking off today. Um, So now we're going to switch gears and we're going to study the Bible. So if you have a Bible, will you go ahead and open up your Bible? Um, Open up your Bible to the Gospel of John. We're in this series called The Last Words of Jesus, where we're looking at the last week of Jesus' life. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. I want to encourage you to grab one of those. Um, We are a mixed group of people. Some of us are here because we're committed to follow Jesus. Some of you are here, you're just curious. You're trying to figure out more about this, and we're glad you're here. No matter what your perspective, we all come to see a little more of who Jesus is. So if you open up those black Bibles, it'll be on page 900. Um, And if you have your own Bible, you could turn to John chapter 15. We started John chapter 15 last week and looked at the idea of the vine and the branches. And the concept that Jesus introduces there is that as we cling to Jesus, then we are tapped into his life and we are a part of the vine and we will bear fruit. We will bear much fruit. And specifically, we zeroed in on how bearing fruit is the joyful obedience of Jesus' commands. And the summary for that is love. So we're going to transition this week into the second half of John 15 and we're calling it love big. Love big. I know that sounds kind of overly simplistic, but that's in the Greek, the language he uses in John 15, 13, he says, greater love, bigger love. It's a Greek word, megalon. Sounds like transformers or something. It's this mega love, this big love. There's no bigger love than to lay down your life for your friends. In context, Jesus has been giving them a lot of pictures of what love looks like, right? And there he's commanding. He's saying, love one another. Um, before we read the text, I want to give you a little introduction from a story from history in World War II. There's a city in France called Le Chambon. 
and I, th- I think there's a better way to pronounce that, but that's my pronunciation, okay? Le Chambon was the city in France where these Christians, these French Christians were hiding and protecting Jews. Jews were fleeing from Germany during uh, the Nazi terror. And the Nazis had taken over France for some, somewhat. The, the Vichy government was kind of uh, giving in to the Nazis. And so these Christians decided they were going to love sacrificially, even though that would bring great threat and great harm to their own lives. That's just one picture from history. You could choose a million. There are a lot of documentaries that have been written about this and a lot of articles that have been written about this on the Christians in Les Chambon. But it was an example of people saying, because Jesus loved us, we're going to love these other people because we believe they're human beings made in the image of God. Jesus loved us. We're going to love them, even though that means trouble for us, even though that means harm could come our way. And that's just one example. I believe as God leads us, as we walk with him, he's going to give you innumerable opportunities to love people in sacrificial ways, in what might seem like scary ways. But God calls us to love because Jesus loved us first. So I want to look here in John 15, starting with verse 12. We read some of this last week, but this is the major command. The love command is the major command of this chapter. And what we're going to see is this love command in these first few verses, and then we're going to see obstacles that are going to make it hard for us to love, okay? So he's saying, I want you to love, but it's going to be hard, all right? So John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, bigger love, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay, do we get the command there? He's repeated himself, love one another. That's the command. We should love, and no bigger love, no greater love than laying down our lives for our friends, and Jesus is the ultimate example of that. And then now he's going to go on and give them a warning. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I'm going to stop there on kind of a negative note, and I'm going to pray that Jesus would help us fulfill this. How are we going to do this? How are we going to fulfill this love that he calls us to, knowing that there will be resistance, knowing that it will often be very hard and very difficult? Let me pray. God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here. We ask for your help. Um, Jesus has called us to something big, and we need the spirit to make this real in our lives. So God, remind us again this morning that you do love us. And, and by that reminder, by that gospel power, we pray that you'd send us out to love others in your name. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the big idea is that we should love big, love in big ways like Jesus gives us the example of, but be warned, no, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There's going to be resistance. So the outline, the outline as we move through the rest of chapter 15 is that we should love despite hate. He warned us. People are going to hate you just like they hated me. It's going to be hard, okay? 
And we need to get our heads right about that. We also need to love in Jesus' name. We'll see there that he's saying, you're a representative. You're not just loving for yourself. You're loving in Jesus' name. And then finally, we're going to see that we get to love with the Spirit's help. We're not just on our own. We have the helper. The comforter is with us. We're not completely abandoned. As much as we feel like we are abandoned sometimes, the Spirit is with you. So this is a hard text this morning. I just want to acknowledge that. This is hard. It's scary for us. But the reassurance is that Jesus is going to make this happen. He's going to help us. He's going to give us the spiritual strength we need to do this. So the first idea is that we are to love big by loving despite hate. Loving despite hate. He's saying there's going to be bad stuff. And I want to kind of back up and, and put this in the balance of all that Scripture says and recognize that we can kind of micro-examine a verse and think this is all there is to the Christian life, right? He's saying, as the world hates me, so they're going to hate you. And you can just take that verse and go, oh, the Christian life is a life of being hated all the time, right? Especially those of you that are like me, a little more melancholy, maybe more of an Eeyore personality, you can think, oh, this is what the Christian life, it's being miserable. And so what I want to set up is that we kind of run one of two ways out of balance in the Christian life. The Christian life is both a life of blessing and a life of suffering. Both things take place as people follow Jesus. And so some of you, you're hardworking, you're optimistic. Proverbs is your favorite book of the Bible. And you tend towards what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. And that is if you have enough faith and you wake up early and brush your teeth, everything's going to be awesome, right? And that's called the prosperity gospel. That's like, if you just follow Jesus, have enough faith, you're just going to be blessed. It's just going to be blessing and blessing and big houses and nice cars, right? And there is some truth to that. Read Proverbs. There is some truth to that. There is blessing in following God. He will teach you how to live as he has designed the human being to live. And there's great blessing in obeying God's law. That's true. But it's not always blessing. The other side of that is what Jesus is telling us here. You're going to sometimes be hated. You're going to sometimes suffer. He's going to say later on in chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And some of you lean more hard on what we sometimes call the poverty gospel right? So there's the prosperity gospel. Everything's rosy and awesome. Then there's a poverty gospel. If you're more of an Eeyore, you're more melancholy. You're like, yeah, to walk with Jesus is to suffer, to hurt, to be hated, to be miserable. That's what it really means to walk with Jesus, right? And I know we all kind of fall off the horse on one side or the other, right? And so as we look at this text this morning, we need to keep in mind there is a balance. But here in context, in history, these guys are, are headed as the disciples. They're headed towards ruling and reigning with Jesus. That's what they're thinking. They're like, we're going to set up the new kingdom. Everything's going to be awesome. And he's warning them, no, there's going to be a few thousand years of not awesome, right? Like, it's not finished yet. We're just starting this program. There's going to be some hatred, some killing, some difficulty that you're going to go through. And so again, there's a, there's a balance here. Let's look at the text in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So bad things are going to come, but he's, he's rooting us in our identity as followers of Jesus saying, but, but the world hated me too, so it's going to be okay, right? This assures us that we're, we're with Jesus, we're, we're walking, he understands us, he can sympathize with us as Hebrews 4.15 says. And so it says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he's saying, the world is going to hate you. And, and when the, the word world is used in the New Testament, it generally means the world system, kind of the rebellious, 
cosmic world order, think like the matrix, or if you're into conspiracy theories, you know, think of all the broken, scary stuff in the world. That's kind of what the New Testament means, right? The world in general has a system that's set up in rebellion against God. And so this is what he's talking about here. There's a, there's a world that wants to rebel against God, that wants to say, I can do life on my own, I can trust in my flesh, I can set my own laws and rules, I can have all the blessings of creation without submission to the creator. That's the world system. They think that system is going to hate you for submitting to God, for trusting Jesus and following him. There's going to be conflict. It's just it's built in. Now, again, looking at balance, we don't go looking for the conflict, right? We don't go trying to stir up the conflict. Depending on your temperament, you might struggle with this, right? Like to be a follower of Jesus, does that mean I'm looking for people to hate me? Am I trying to cause problems? Well, no, that's not really what it means. He's just saying, be warned, it will happen. It will happen. There will be resistance. I grabbed a picture here, an old woodcut of Polycarp. He's one of the early church fathers, kind of a generation right after the apostles. He's got some famous writings, and um, there's a lot of ancient stuff you can read. Uh, any of you read like Fox's Book of Martyrs or any of that kind of stuff where it describes people who have died for their faith? Um, there's a, a ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs that talks about that and kind of raises awareness. Some of you may not realize this, but the 20th century, as we understand it, there have been more Christian martyrs, more people who have been hated and killed for following Jesus than any other century that has existed. Like just tons and tons, thousands and thousands of people who have been killed in the name of Christ. And we don't recognize that because we live in this place of relative safety. And so, number one, again, we don't want to get out of balance. We want to say, man, thank you, Jesus, that we have all the freedom we have. Thank you, Jesus, that I can stand up and talk about Jesus in a large public gathering. The church is allowed to own property. We can broadcast the gospel. There's all kinds of freedom we have here, and we want to thank God for that. But we also want to be careful and recognize that's not normal in the last 2,000 years of history. That's an unusual blessing. I've joked with people that throughout the world, um, this is not how ministry works, right? To follow Jesus is a much more of an underground affair throughout the world, and we need to have that in the front of our minds. Now, for us, we can enjoy these blessings. I, I talk about it like surfing, like, yeah, I'm just riding this wave of Christendom. It's about to crash, right? Like, it's all about to fall apart, and I'm sure because of history and because of Jesus' warnings, I know that this won't last forever, but we'll enjoy it while we can and just try to preach the gospel to as many people as possible and encourage people to follow Jesus while we have these great freedoms. So I think as citizens in our country, we want to vote for those kind of freedoms. We want to continue to try to vote in ways that we encourage our government to honor God's law, but we just kind of know it's not really normal. It's normal for the government, it's normal for the world to resist God's law and to resist God's people. And so we just need to have that ready in our hearts. We just kind of be, have a little steel in our spine, right? Like be, be ready, know, yeah, people all over the world die for following Jesus. Am I, am I willing to die for following Jesus? And that's a hard question, and I'd ask you to think about that. Am I, am I ready to suffer? Am I ready to love people in such a big way that I love them even though they don't return love to me. Listen, folks, in our recovery ministry, we talk about a thing called codependency. Have you ever heard of the word codependency? It's really helpful to, to study a little bit. Codependency means you love people so that you can get love back. That's not Christian love. And I'm not saying you're going to hell if you're codependent. I have codependency struggles myself, right? but you have to tell yourself, no, I'm not, I'm not loving to get loved back. I love because Jesus loved me first. 
I love because Jesus loved me first. Sometimes people will love me back. Sometimes people will hate me. And don't misunderstand, I'm pretty good at getting people to love me back, right? So I'm not saying there's anything terrible about that, right? Like you, you want to win people over. You want to woo people. You want to befriend people. Again, we're not saying go after the Christian life in such a way that you just stir up hatred, right? Go like make people mad for Jesus. That's not, that's not what we're saying. But we have to be willing to face anger. We have to be willing to face resistance. I remember when I first started following Jesus, I was going into my senior year in high school, and this was really crystal clear for me. And again, I'm a little more of a melancholy personality, so I can still remember this prayer of like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you even though I know you're going to ruin my life. Like that was my prayer to Jesus because I was heading into my senior year, right? And I had this over here, these weird Christians I didn't really like, and over here, all the cool pagan friends that I've been running around with, and I'm like, Jesus, you want me to go hang out with those weird Christian people? And that was hard for me. And I I prayed that prayer like, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk with you, Jesus. I'm going to obey you, even though that's going to be so hard. Now, what I want to encourage you is there was something noble about that, but there was something also really overly negative about that as well. I was prepared to be hated for Jesus' sake, but there was blessing. It was a mix. As I said, there's a balance. And so let me give you a couple of cross-references that balance this out. One is Matthew 5. Matthew 5 shows us that there's blessing in being persecuted for following Jesus, but then Matthew 5 also says, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do you see that? It's not just one or the other. You're going to do good stuff. You're going to love people, and they're going to see it, and they're going to praise God for that. There's also going to be persecution. It's very clear. Both are there. In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, blessed are the persecuted, but also let your light shine, and and people are going to see, and they're going to praise God as you love others. We're to be salt and light in this world, so don't give up. Keep loving, even though there will be resistance. There will be persecution and pain sometimes. Another cross-reference is 1 Peter 2.12. Very parallel language. Just to give it in context, all of 1 Peter is about suffering and persecution. That's what the whole book is about. And right there in the middle in 1 Peter 2.12, he says, "But, but let your conduct be so honorable that these pagans would see and glorify God. Very parallel language. So there will be blessing. People will notice, right? But we don't do it to get noticed. It's not codependency. We don't love to get loved. We don't love to get people to fall in love with us. We love because Jesus loved us first. Sometimes there's going to be blessings in return. Sometimes it's going to be persecution and hardship. And as followers of Jesus, if we're going to love big, we've got to be ready for that. We've got to be prepared. We have to have a little more steel in our spine as followers of Christ. I'm going to read a, another section, skip to the next chapter. Just as he gets into chapter 16, he, he picks up the same idea again. Chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So as you follow Jesus and horrible things happen to you, he's saying, I'm preparing you now. The world is against you and it's going to be hard. You're going to get sick. You're going to have problems. You're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. So don't let that make you stumble. Don't let that make you think that I've abandoned you. Remember what he said in John 14, I have not left you as orphans. I'm with you. So he says, I'm preparing you so that you don't stumble, fall away. Verse 2, they will put, out, put you out of the synagogues. That's the gatherings, the Jewish gatherings. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember 
that I told them to you. So he's saying, no, the world's going to hate you as it hated me. Remember, I warned you about this. Bad things are going to happen. So to follow Jesus again, in balance of the whole New Testament, it doesn't mean nothing but bad things, but we've got to be ready for the bad things. Does that make sense? Are you ready? Are you ready to love people even if they don't return the love? Are you ready to serve people even if it doesn't go well? And a little clue with how to love is embedded here in the text. If we go back again, I know I'm skipping around a lot. Go back to chapter 15, verse 20. Chapter 15, verse 20, as Jesus is talking about this hate that we might face, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's like, remember, you're not better than me. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Oh, but sometimes they followed me and they'll also follow you. They'll honor the blessings, the truth. And this little phrase of remember a servant is no greater than his master, he's repeating what he said two chapters ago in John 13. He's, he's tying their minds back. This is what it looks like to love. Remember what he did in, in John 13? The servant's not greater than his master. What did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. He washed his disciples' feet. And so we have this picture here of what it looks like to love others. Later on, we're going to see you've got to speak up and tell the truth of the gospel. There's the word witness will show up at the end of chapter 15. Right here, though, he's drawing their minds back to practically serving. Are you willing to get dirty, to serve, to love, to help your neighbor, your coworkers, even if they hate you, even if they don't acknowledge you, even if they don't love you in return? Are you willing to love them? Remember, Jesus loved his disciples washed their feet, and one of them betrayed him. He's just saying, be ready. That's going to happen. You're going to get betrayed, but it's okay. You can still love others in my name. My question is, would you love differently? Think about this. The people you love, the questions you're asking about how to respond to certain people in your life, would you love differently if you know that Jesus already knows you're not always going to be loved in return? That affect how you love others. I think there's great freedom in being set free from, I don't have to love people to get the right response. Again, I I said this earlier, I'm really good at getting positive responses out of people. Just like the way God's wired me, I'm a peacemaker, I'm a harmonizer, I'm really good at making friends with people. That's just a natural gift of my flesh, and so I can fall into this dangerous place of thinking that I can always get the right response out of people, right? That I can always woo people how would you love people differently if, if you knew that was outside of your control? If you knew your job was just to love people and leave the results to God. That's what he's calling us to. Love. Go love. Don't, go do crazy things for me, Jesus is saying. Love God. Love other people and leave the results to me. See what happens. Sometimes it's going to be good. Sometimes it's going to be bad. We're like farmers sowing seeds. Sometimes there's a great crop. Sometimes not much happens. So this brings us to the next section that we are to love in Jesus' name. And this kind of continues this codependency thing. We're not, we're not loving in our name. We're not loving to build an identity for ourselves. We're loving because Jesus gave us an identity. And we're going to see this model. This has worked through a lot of different places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, like, the Father sends me, so I'm sending you. He's like, the Father loved me, so I'm loving you. Here he's saying, we're going to do these things. We're going to love others because I'm representing the Father's name, so you're now representing my name. So he's modeling this for us. Look at John uh, 15, 21 through 25. It says in 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What does he mean there about they wouldn't be guilty? He means they wouldn't be guilty of rejecting him. Uh, They had the law. They're already guilty of disobeying God's law. He's talking about the specific guilt of rejecting Jesus. He knows it's very clear. They know I'm representing the Father. It's like I've done the greater works. I've shown them who I am. I've shown them my connection to the Father, and still they reject me. So again, he's he's clarifying that in this uh, parallel way, he represents the Father, and we represent him. We're loving, not in our name, but in Jesus' name. He has shown us this example of representing the Father. He says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting the Psalms. The New Testament authors repeatedly quote the Psalms. The Psalms were written by worship leaders and kings in the Old Testament to talk about their own personal life, real historical details of what it looked like to follow God and to entrust himself to you. We keep coming back to the Psalms as we've worked through John because we said the Psalms are a really good example of what it means to have a robust prayer life. In the Psalms, you can see the balance of both crying out to God, grieving, oh God, please fix this life. I'm being hated and it hurts. Please help me. Please save me. How long, oh Lord? We see that side of it and we see, yet I will trust you. You are the God of all blessing. You are the God of all goodness. And we see this repeatedly in the Psalms. Well, here, this psalm is being quoted, and really both Psalm 35 and Psalm 69 say the same thing, so we're not sure exactly which one he means. Psalms, in general, quote things like this. But here we see King David as the champion, as the king, as the shepherd of Israel, being hated without reason. So King David was loving people and trying to serve people and being rejected. And so here Jesus sang even more in my life. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater king, right? All the kings, all the heroes of the Old Testament are little mini-messiahs, right? They're, they're little heroes, little saviors that point us to the perfect savior. None of them were perfect. They were all failed, flawed human beings like us. And they point us to the ultimate champion, the ultimate savior, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, even me, Jesus, the perfect savior, I'm going to be hated without cause, and so how much more will you? So we recognize that we are diplomats, we're, we're ambassadors, we're, we're stand-in, we're representatives, right? We're, we're loving people in Jesus' name. Uh, when I was a teenager in junior high, I used to stay with my dad in Washington, D.C., and you would see these cars driving around that were embassy cars, and they would have a diplomat license plate. I always heard, this was just in my little teenager brain, that they could do whatever they wanted to and they couldn't get a ticket because they had the diplomat plate. I don't know if that's really true, Um, But what it meant was they were not a citizen of our country, right? They were representatives of another country. And the New Testament repeatedly uses that language to describe us. We don't belong here. We're not a part of this world. We don't belong to this world, but we belong to Jesus. Remember earlier he was saying, I've chosen you out of the world. You don't belong to the world anymore. You're part of the new world to come where I'm making all things right. So we have to recognize that. We're we're diplomats. We're, We're representatives. We're ambassadors. We're, we're standing in to represent Jesus's will. So when you love people, are you loving people for you? Are you loving people so they'll know, oh, they're so awesome. They love me so well. Are you loving people in a way that points back to Jesus? Are you loving in a representative way? Do you, do you love in Jesus' name or do you love in your name? We've seen this with the prayers, right? Ask whatever you wish in Jesus' name 
and it will be given to you. Are you working? Are you praying? Are you slogging it out to love others in Jesus' name? There's a great example of this that I think uh, we can see in the Gospel of John. If we go all the way back to John chapter 4, a picture of what it means to love in Jesus' name is to be um, vulnerable. John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And I pointed that out at the time. I was like, this is an example of Jesus who is perfect and sinless sharing his vulnerability and his weakness with another person. That's one of the most profound ways that we can love in Jesus' name. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to think I can only love people well when everything is in order in my life. You ever feel that way? I can only love people well when everything's clean, when everything's together. Well, maybe not clean. I'm not that clean. But when I've got all my stuff together, right? When I've got everything ordered and I look right and I look smart and I feel like I've got all the answers, then I can love people. But we see this beautiful example of Jesus where he's embodying grace is what it means to be a a human in the flesh that has needs and is thirsty sometimes and he shares his vulnerability with others. What would it look like for you to love others in a transparent way? Where you're actually real about your weaknesses. Yeah, I I don't always do things right. No, I don't mean glorying in our failure. I don't mean glorying in our sin. I just mean... Yeah, man, I, I struggle, and I, I also need Jesus. I, I need help. I need other people, and I think that's one of the ways that we can represent Jesus. We get our identity from Jesus. We love in Jesus' name. Sometimes we talk about this as preaching the gospel to yourself, right? In the morning, at lunch, every moment of the day, you have to remind yourself, I love because he first loved me. I'm safe in Christ. I belong to him. I'm not an orphan. He said in John 14, I haven't abandoned you. You're going to feel abandoned. He hasn't abandoned you. He says he's going to send the Spirit to you to remind you you're safe in him, that you belong to him, and that's going to enable you to keep going. It's going to enable you to, to trust him. So that brings us to this next idea that we are loving with the Spirit's help. We're loving with the Spirit's help. We're not all on our own, like it said in John 14 a couple of weeks ago. He hasn't left us. He sent the Spirit Uh, to represent his power to us. We have the Father, we have the Son with us. He's going to use some of that language here. Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one. So we have the help of the Spirit in our lives. Look at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying, I'm going to send the helper. Remember, he used that same language before. Talked about this before, how the word helper can have a very literal picture. It's kind of a word picture of coming alongside, putting your arm around someone. The verb form of this word is to exhort or encourage. It's like grabbing someone and saying, come on. Uh, Often I'll use the picture of like a physical therapist helping someone to learn to walk again. Talked a few weeks ago about how we often think about us needing to work through our sin to get to God, but the gospel is that God came through our sin to get to us. And now his arm is around us and he's going to help us to deal with what we need to deal with next. And so that's the picture here, the helper. There's also this nuance of the word helper can, in a very um, technical sense in the first century, mean an advocate or a lawyer. I was talking to Eunice about this. She was saying how she was seeing in the Korean text, she's reading alongside how it brings out a lot more of this kind of witness law court interplay with this idea of an advocate who's speaking up to you. I grabbed a picture here. This word in the New Testament can also mean a lawyer. 
And John picks this up later in his little short letter called 1 John or 1 John. It's at the end of the Bible, close to Revelation. In that little letter, he picks up that kind of imagery of the advocate, right? You have someone that's going to speak up for you. Uh, we like to tease lawyers in our society, f- you know, for being bad people. But the goal is that they're going to stick up for the little guy, right? That's, that's their job. And he's saying, I'm sending the helper. I'm sending the advocate. I'm sending the one who will speak up for you, the person who will stand in. And so we know we can love because Jesus will speak up for us. Another really cool idea of this, I think, just going back to the kind of physical therapy idea, is in weightlifting. I don't know if you've ever done weightlifting, but a lot of times in weightlifting, you train with heavy weight by having a helper to spot you. Do you have a helper to help spot you? Jesus says, yeah, you've got the Holy Spirit. Um, I used to lift heavy weights. I actually remember one time lifting heavy weights without a helper, and that was bad news. So I was an all-night security guard in uh, seminary. So I was like 28 years old, still young enough to do stupid things like this. And as an all-night security guard, it was like 2 a.m., and I'm locking the building, and I'm down in the gym in the basement. And I'm like, oh, you know, while I'm down here, I'll lift some weights. And I'm lifting some weights, too heavy, and it gets stuck, right? And I'm like, I'm going to die down here (laughs) at 2 a.m., you know, locked in the basement. They're going to discover me a couple of days later. Um, Thankfully, I didn't have collars on, so I was able to slip it off. But let that be a lesson to you. Don't try things without a helper, okay? Don't try to lift heavy weight without a spotter. And Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to do something really big here. I'm asking you to love people in a difficult world where the odds will often be stacked against you, but I'm not leaving you without a helper. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. Does that set you free? That sets me free to go, okay, I can, I can try anything. That makes me think, okay, I could take risks. I, I could actually love people and try risky things. What, what kind of risky things would you attempt if you knew you had miraculous, supernatural help? That's what Jesus is promising here. You have miraculous, supernatural help. You have the Holy Spirit spotting you to lift weights you've never lifted before. So, so if you're trying to face down your demons, if you're trying to face recovery, if you're trying to face addiction, if you're trying to put away sin, he's saying, the Holy Spirit's going to help you. He's with you. Don't be scared. You can do it. If you're trying to serve people in new ways that you haven't served before, I'm scared. I don't know if I'm good enough at this, or I don't know if I can help in that way. Try it. Take the risk. Serve, because the Holy Spirit will help you. If you're wanting to witness to the truth of the gospel, that's scary, right? Can I, can, I share, can I share a little moment of honesty with you? Is that okay? Um, I'm a professional uh, witnesser to the gospel, right? Like you guys, I don't know if you knew this, I get paid full-time by you to tell people about Jesus. And I still am afraid sometimes to tell people about Jesus. And that's what I basically do all day long, all week long. So I know you're afraid sometimes too. And here he's saying the Holy Spirit will help you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. Don't be afraid. I was training the teenagers a couple weeks ago for our Impact Summer Clubs, and one of the ideas I gave them was, hey, make an appointment with a friend and just say, hey, let's have coffee or, you know, get together and boba tea, whatever teenagers do these days, and let's hang out, and I want to talk to you about my faith. Just make the appointment, right? This is a really good way to take a risk for Jesus. Just make an appointment with a friend, say, hey, I want to get together with you and, and talk about my faith or talk about what we've been learning at church or however it would be appropriate to phrase that, and then you've already like made the appointment. Now you're on the hook. You have to do it, right? 
And then pray and the Holy Spirit will, will give you the words you need to witness. L- look at this in the text. This is a promise. He says in verse 26, the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will bear witness. The Holy Spirit can't be stopped. He's going to do this. A lot of Christians today think the Holy Spirit's all about miracles for you, making you look flashy. He's saying, no, the Holy Spirit's going to witness about Jesus. And he goes on and says, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. He's saying, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to strengthen you to do this. And of course, in context, he's talking to the disciples. You've been with me from the beginning. I'm going to empower you. But this same language carries through the rest of the New Testament. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to be one who has Jesus with you through the Holy Spirit. See parallel language in Romans 8 where he says, a lot of times you don't even know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit will pray for you. Saying the same kind of thing here. A lot of times you don't know what to say. I just made this appointment to talk to somebody about Jesus and I have no idea what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You can trust him. I want us to be a risk-taking people who, who step out in faith knowing that God's gonna be there with us. Knowing that I couldn't, I couldn't lift this weight without him, but he's gonna spot me and we're gonna do this. And I'm not gonna die. I might get humiliated, but I'll be fine, right? God's going to walk with me and and help me. There will be days when it's rejected, and there will be days when it's received. Again, we don't love people. We don't serve people like the washing of feet. We don't pursue recovery in our own life. We don't pursue sharing the truth of the gospel with people in order to get exactly the right results that we want. We do it out of faithfulness to Jesus, knowing that Jesus loved us first. So we're going to respond by loving others, and then we're going to leave the results up to him. I want to finish by looking back at Les Chambon, just an interesting thing that we learned as I was studying this in a Christian ethics class in seminary. Um, In ethics, you kind of are basically learning about what's right, what's wrong, and a really interesting question that came out that used Les Chambon as a case study is, what's the opposite of hate? Talking about hate here, and sometimes we think the opposite of hate is neutrality, right? Sometimes we think the opposite of hate is neutrality, is tolerance. The Jews that were saved by the Christians of Le Chambon looked back on that experience and they said, we were saved in this village in France and it was scary and these Christians did sacrificial things to love us in practical ways and to help us and to save us. And then you know what? They got us to this promised land of a neutral country called Switzerland. And in Switzerland we were ignored and tolerated in its neutrality. And they said, you know what? I I take that scary love over the freedom of neutrality any day of the week. And that's what we have to offer people in Christ. We we can offer them this, this risky love, this dangerous love. People don't want just the the freedom of neutrality and tolerance. People want real love. And Jesus risked it all to come for us. That, that's the message. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. He took our sin upon him. He gives us resurrection power. He says, go in my name and you can love others and you can make an impact in a similar way to what I've done. Remember earlier he said, you'll do even greater works. What are the greater works? He said, the greater works of the Father, the greater works of the Son are seeing people find a resurrection life in Christ. That's what he calls us to, to share that hope by serving as we wash people's feet figuratively and by witnessing to the truth of this gospel, this Jesus that we can trust. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've called us to big things. Father, we pray 
that you would empower us supernaturally to trust you. Whether society loves us or hates us, we know that you love us, and so we're secure. God, I pray that you would steal us, that you would strengthen us, that your spirit would empower us, that you would spot us to love in big ways, to serve others in your name for your glory, no matter what the response is. Help us to love in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have the opportunity to remind ourselves to be refreshed in communion. Communion is a way that Christians for 2,000 years have been remembering Jesus. And so when Christians come to the bread and the cup, what they're remembering is that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilt for us. That he absorbed the wrath of God. That he took our sins upon himself and he rose from the dead. And so I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, no matter what background you come from, to come to the table as an expression of your faith in Jesus, as a reminder to you that you can trust him, that he gave himself for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to make this a time of spiritual reflection. Uh, We want this to be uh, a beneficial time for you. Come forward with everybody else as we come to the table, and I would just encourage you to skip the bread and the cup, because that's really a sign of allegiance to Jesus. But as you pass by, make it a time of reflection and meditation and ask yourself what it is you're trusting in, because we're all trusting in something. We all have faith in someone or something. If it's not Jesus, what is it? And I would love to talk to you more about what that means. If you've had friends that invited you, they'd love to talk to you as well. We're told that during this time, this last week of Jesus' life, this last night of his life, He broke bread with his disciples. He gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he lifted a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul says that as churches gather around Jesus, that we're proclaiming his death until he returns. Amen.